on Main Street and to the conclusion of the story about the movies of the Spanish-American War. To be honest, at first, I really thought this subject could have been accomplished in one episode, but things fought against this. The first issue I faced was the number of movies that took advantage of this political situation. The second was the way the movies infiltrated so many aspects of the war. This meant that I'd have to do a lot more research on the war than I had expected. Another problem was that we, meaning the general public, really don't know much about that war. It's not repeatedly explained to us in the way that World War II is. Like I had mentioned last time, the reasons for our wars are much more complicated than we generally know. A fourth problem is considering how our ancestors thought about this situation. This is an important topic because of the way these movies were received and how they influenced Americans. If America's mind had been closed to the war, then their interest in these films wouldn't have amounted to much. Instead, these films made a big impression upon the public at a time when it seems like the public's curiosity about moving images as a novelty was beginning to wane. Unlike any other novelty entertainment of that time, maybe because of the war, the moving picture process was showing that it was capable of adapting to new situations and that it was more than a one-trick pony. It was probably this ability to take advantage of the war by altering its subject matter as well as its style that rescued the movies from its position as an entertainment novelty. As for the war itself, it was declared on April 25, 1898. That's when the United States declared war on Spain. Secretary of State John Sherman, very old and growing incompetent, resigned in anger. As for the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, he also resigned this time to lead a charge of soldiers in the war. His supervisor, Secretary of Navy John Long, found Roosevelt to be quite a competent assistant and was angered that he was leaving. One day, when Long took time off, Roosevelt had managed to restation all of the various naval squadrons to important positions in case there was a war. He even managed to send out orders for retaining men, supplying the ships, and arranging for extra ships to be purchased. Despite what was later written about Roosevelt's actions, they were neither impulsive nor were they unwise. Long's only complaint was that Roosevelt didn't check with him first. But then, Long had a reputation for being lazy, so it's possible that all Roosevelt did was cover up Long's delays. Once the war broke out, Admiral Dewey's squadron, which Roosevelt had harbored in China, just north of Hong Kong, set out to attack the Philippines, creating the first battle of the war. Like Cuba, the Philippines had been revolting against Spain for some time. While this war had been less well managed by their rebels than had the Cuban revolt, 
it was also less well fought by the Spanish due to the Philippines being on the other side of the world from Spain. The Spanish believed that Manila and its bay were protected by the Spanish Navy. They were wrong. Despite the myth of a surprise attack, the Spanish in the Philippines did know that Dewey's squadron was heading for Manila Bay. The problem was that Rear Admiral Patricio Montojo didn't have enough ships or armaments to protect the harbor. Originally, he had planned to lure the Americans into Subic Bay, just north of Manila Bay, along the Philippine edge of the East China Sea. But with his limited amount of ships, he chose to protect the city of Manila instead. Dewey had been informed that Manila Bay was not adequately mined, and because of this information, he sailed into the bay at night and at sunrise proceeded to devastate the Spanish Navy as well as the forts. It would probably be fair to say that none of the European countries expected America to take the lead in this war. Spain was considered to be much more powerful and organized than they proved to be. Much of this misunderstanding of strength came from other European countries in the same kind of general situation as Spain. These countries believed in the ways they handled their overseas colonies and feared what could happen if the Cuban revolt spread around the world. In other words, the news of Dewey's glorious victory took everyone by surprise. Everyone, that is, except for those at Manila Bay. Dewey's success made it clear that the first month or so of the war would be fought on naval terms. As the U.S. government called for soldiers, many men eagerly volunteered to fight. They traveled to the staging grounds in Florida, where they were trained before leaving to invade the island. All of this should have taken time, but proved to be a military rush job. At the same time, a battle of ocean chess was played by the various squadrons of the United States and Spanish navies. At first, Admiral Sampson bombarded San Juan and Puerto Rico. The attack killed hundreds. Then the Spanish navy disappeared with rumors that it was heading to the Philippines to attack Dewey. But this all appeared to be a rumor, and by the end of May, Admiral Sanson had the bulk of the Spanish Navy locked up in Santiago Bay, thereby giving the United States Navy the opportunity to start transporting their troops for the Cuban invasion. Two types of images were shot of the war, real ones and reenacted ones. After well over a hundred years of military conflicts on film, we now know that much of the documented footage actually makes for a poor understanding of what was going on during the battles. Instead, it's the reenactments that make much more sense to us visually, whether it's staged recreations like on the History Channel or a fiction movie based on real events. Probably the first person to understand this was Georges Méliès. Besides his stage-crafted haunted houses and magic workshops, he took time in 1897 to create sets that were used to portray scenes from a war that had developed between the Greeks and the Turks. Rather than simply filming soldiers moving up a hill or showing a distant cannon firing from a fort, 
he chose to build sets that showed some highlight of a war. This was not anything new. Theater had been using major events of the 19th century as backgrounds for a host of melodramas. Europe had the Crimean War and the Napoleonic Wars, and America had the Civil War. In fact, plays like Shenandoah, The Warrens of Virginia, and Arizona all used this technique at some point in their stories. What was different for Milliez was that these action scenes were not just part of a play, but were individual pieces in themselves. He was also a very good builder of stage sets, and these film scenes would be shown on screens in Europe and America. It was the Warwick Trading Company out of London that exported Melies's films to America, and they seem to have been shown there on occasion. Filming these stage reenactments would be Melies's first major contribution to the movies. The first reenactments of the Spanish-American War were inspired by Dewey's Manila Surprise. The Battle of Manila Bay was a tempting subject for a film, and two different groups attempted the same thing. The more ambitious film was made by Albert Smith and Jimmy Blackton, but the other film, the one made in Chicago by George Spoor and William Amet, has the reputation of being the better film of the two. Immediately after the war started, Smith and Blackton attempted to capture that feeling of spirit of war that was rampaging through the country, and they did it in a thoroughly symbolic way. They had already built a rather large and clumsy machine that was capable of recording images, projecting them, and even producing them, much like the Lumiere camera, only much more unwieldy. They called it the Dunderburger, and they would later drag this cumbersome machine to Cuba to film the war. But at first, they dragged it up to the rooftop of the Morris Building in downtown Manhattan, the building was owned by relatives of Samuel Morse, the telegraph inventor, and it's now registered as a historic landmark. Smith and Blackton had a small cubicle of an office in the building. For their film, they climbed above the 14th story onto the roof and brought with them their Dunderburger, as well as a broom or pole, a few flags, a painted backdrop that looked like a close-up of a fort, and a roll of film. To be honest, that backdrop may have been built up there in advance. What they filmed was a Spanish flag raised high and flapping in the breeze. Suddenly, the flag is lowered and Old Glory is raised in its place. At this point, Blackton and Smith were not yet mass-producing films or distributing them. These movies were made for their stage performances, and the crowds loved this film, known as the Spanish Flag Torn Down, or the American Flag Over Morro Castle, as it was later called. Its success encouraged them to follow it up with another film about Dewey's capture of Manila. The second film was known as The Battle of Manila Bay, and was also created upon the Morse building roof. This film included not only Blackton and Smith, but their office boy, whose name I don't know. This involved a large tub about the size of a bed. A landscape of hills and small buildings was painted along one side of the interior of the tub. 
and it was filled with water just deep enough to cover a hand as it manipulated items along the bottom. Photographs of the various ships had been glued to blocks of wood, and those blocks were attached to thin metal rods that were used to move the ships along the surface of the water. Very small charges of gunpowder were placed in the ship's handmade guns. Most stories say that the guns were fired using punks, although one source once said that they were fired electrically. A mechanical egg beater was used to make waves, and smoke was blown from cigars and cigarettes to give the impression of a battle scene. All of this was incredibly inventive and quite remarkable in its naval reenactment. Rumor was that everyone believed that Blackton and Smith had actually obtained footage of the battle, although it seems to have been understood the public was aware of the Melies' films and they understood them to be reenactments. This is very confusing, to say the least. This may mean that the public already understood the need for reenactments as a way to clarify the story of a war. But it might have been much more than the public's fervor over the war. They may have quickly figured out that no war film shot in the Philippines could have appeared in an American theater so quickly, and they may have forgiven its reenacted nature. But even more likely, they just wanted to celebrate an American victory. Later, when Admiral Dewey returned to Washington, D.C. as a war hero, newspapers reported that there were people who were giving street exhibitions of films that were referred to as biograph exhibitions. At the time, the Mutoscope Company had been known for doing this kind of thing, but this time the newspapers suggested that these shows were more amateurish and were simplistic miniature versions of Mutoscope street shows given by some street vendor was kind of like the old give-a-show toy projectors. What this vendor had built was a basic lantern with a reflector attached to its back to increase illumination. It was used to produce light for something homemade, maybe a combination of a magic lantern show and a biograph film. This was a stripped-down version of the kind of shows that traveling exhibitors were already starting to use in smaller cities and towns across America. At the time, they too seemed to be showing some type of Spanish-American films, and it's possible that the Mutoscope Company was selling some of these films to them. Another Manila Bay film was made in Chicago by George Spoor and William Amitt. Their production group was still on the ground floor, and in some ways it was even more primitive than the Blackton Smith film. Their machine was called the Magnoscope, and its larger images made the film seem more impressive. Like Blackton and Smith, Amit and Spoor were rather fascinated with the opportunities the moving pictures gave them to express their views about the war, as well as a way to exploit their view for money. These Chicago films were not cataloged or documented in any way, so it's impossible to know what came first. It's speculated that Amit started out by making live-action reenacted war films before moving on to naval battles. But it seems to me that though he was inspired by the Blackton Smith films, his efforts possibly depended upon whatever mutoscope films he saw first. 
One suggestion that was made of Amit in Spore's first films was that the first one was a symbolic story that used different characters to represent the various sides of the war, kind of like a moving editorial picture of sorts. The symbolic struggle between these characters quickly culminated in America's liberation of Cuba. Cuba was even portrayed rather patronizingly as a child in this Amit film. Amit would also make a number of naval recreations of the war with varying degrees of success, and with most of them being exhibited throughout the Midwest. Still, the majority of the films that came from this season-long war were films about the later land action as Americans invaded the island. This included films about the staging of the invading forces in Key West and Tampa, as well as the headliner military acts such as the Rough Riders, featuring Colonel Theodore Roosevelt's charge up San Juan Hill. By the beginning of June of 1898, the United States military was ready to invade. By the end of July, Spain was suing for peace. The Marines invaded the east end of the island at Guantanamo Bay with the intent of capturing Santiago. By the end of July, the city had surrendered. Spain had been hoping to send a fleet of ships to help rescue Manila in the Philippines, but all of this was too little, too late. A policy that Spain had been following for a few decades. America even dropped what was left of the Civil War submarine, the Merrimack, into Santiago Harbor as a massive marine obstacle and then exploded the old ship in order to seal up the bay. England, which had used the war to declare an alliance with America, now offered to negotiate America's peace with Spain. While Havana starved, the next few months involved the ritual of establishing a treaty of peace. To almost everyone, America's accomplishments in the war seemed nothing short of remarkable. Even America didn't think that the war's aims would be accomplished as quickly as they were, and it did give many in America the inflated belief that war was an easy solution to international problems. But thankfully, 16 years later, with the start of World War I, America had comfortably returned to its isolationist views. For a short period of time, the United States celebrated its surprise victory and reveled in the war films that could be found in random American cities, playing for a longer period of time than the war was fought. These later movies included documentary films about the preparations for the invasion, as well as actual battle footage. There were also some reenactments, but now that the true-to-life documentary footage was available, the public seemed to be satisfied with their less-than-perfect views. After all, they now knew how the splendid little war ended. For most of this documentary footage, two groups were involved, William Paley, who was working for the Edison Group, and Arthur Marvin and Edwin Porter, who were working for Mutoscope Company. There may have been a few others. Georges Méliès made a reenacted film of the Manila Battle, calling it Defending the Fort at Manila. Since this film doesn't exist anymore, it's hard to tell how this is different from The Surrender at Turvados, a movie he made about the Greco-Turkish War a year earlier. 
At the beginning of 1898, the Eden Musée was just about the only place that was showing movies in New York City. This was what was once called a dime museum, a place that was rather tawdry in its subject matter, but really struggling to make itself look upscale. Since the days of P.T. Barnum, dime museums had become more respectable, and the Eden Musée was created by people who had developed Madame Tussaud's Wax Museum in London. It even had a theater for live shows. By the end of January of 1898, the museum was showing the Horowitz Passion Play, and cameraman Edwin Porter was running the machine. A few weeks later, the royal entertainers, or as we now know them, Jimmy Blackton and Al Smith, were running some films at Proctor's Pleasure Palace, a newer vaudeville house not far from the Eden Musée. It was the day after their premiere that the main blew up, and a week after that, the two men had renamed a film clip that they had made of the USS Massachusetts, calling it Remember the Main. The audience went crazy for the film. Hungry for money, the two men would try anything that would feed into the audience's hunger for patriotism. They showed the flag film they had made, the one about bringing down the Spanish flag and hoisting up the American one, and they set out to film as many icons of the early war as they could, in as little time as possible. When the Cuban warship, the Vizcaya, docked in New York City, they filmed it. They also filmed a number of dignitaries and diplomats related to the international incident whenever they appeared in Manhattan. All these film clips were being shown at Proctor's. It seems that Blackton and Smith hurried over to Cuba to film the wreckage of the Maine as well as film of the funeral march of some of the victims of the tragedy. They even took the time to grab some footage of the concentration camps. It's not known when Edison finally reacted to the outburst of war cinema being exhibited by Blackton and Smith. From the beginning of the year, he, or more appropriately his lawyers, had been bullying a number of people and groups who were profiting from making films and exhibiting them. The acceptance of his latest patent claims gave them the belief that the Edison Company legally controlled the making and use of all movie-making machinery. Since many of these people were either fly-by-night investors fascinated by moving images or simply promoting a one-off project like the Passion Play films, many of these people either shut down or handed over their projects to Edison, allowing them to become Edison agents. The Edison group had not yet dealt with Blackton and Smith, and the sudden success of both the Eden Musée and the two young men pushing the war film rankled the Edison group. Spotting an opportunity, the Edison people contracted with William Paley, and he followed in the footsteps of Blackton and Smith, primarily filming scenes in Key West. But the army was readying Tampa as the debarkation point for the invasion troops, and as soon as Paley returned to New York with his funerary and naval footage, he was rushed back to Tampa to capture images of the troops. The problem with all of this was Paley's size and age. Blackton and Smith were in their early 20s at this time, but Paley was just about 40. Add to this his corpulence as he weighed at 335 pounds. 
He was a very heavy man, and unlike the thin, active, youthful duo running the commutoscope company, Paley was sluggish and had a terrible time traversing the hills of Cuba, especially in the tropical climate. Add to this problem the physical problems he had developed after exhibiting an X-ray machine for two months without any kind of lead shield, as would eventually be required in the following decades. After his X-ray shows, he became sick, and it was only the lure of Edison's money that got him to travel to Cuba. Still, his films were widely respected. Unlike the mutoscopers, who only use their films for their New York shows, the Edison films went out to the world, and Paley got some credit for the work. Once the soldiers debarked for Cuba in early June, Paley went with them. He had befriended the commander-in-chief of the landing expedition, Brigadier General William Shafter, another very corpulent man. A Paley obituary later described them as two mammoths of the Yankee expedition. Paley traveled on the USS Olivet, a hospital ship. In Cuba, he had to deal with rough roads, rains, mud, heat, mosquitoes, snipers, yellow fever, bad food, and water. Through this, he had to cart his movie equipment, and it proved to be quite a trial. But what Paley captures was a good record of the land battles of that war. He filmed the supposed charge up San Juan Hill, which was not quite a charge, nor was it up San Juan Hill. Paley was able to capture images of the Rough Riders before the battle, including Teddy Roosevelt in uniform, but the battle itself was more of a nervous jungle scene filled with puffs of smoke as the Rough Riders attempted to move up the hill. William Amet reenacted a similar film but shot it in the flatlands of Illinois. At the time, no one really noticed. Paley also shot images of the battles leading to the invasion of Santiago. Before the Battle of San Juan, he watched as one of the black American sharpshooters took out a Spanish sharpshooter hidden in a coconut tree 1,400 yards away. At Las Casimas, he saw New York newspaper reporter Edward Marshall as he was shot. Paley also filmed the first firing upon San Juan from the Grimes Battery. He was warned by Grimes to move as the Spanish would immediately respond to the cannons. Just as Paley sheltered himself behind a sugar mill, a shell burst where he had once stood. At the same time, a sharpshooter's bullet hit the chamber of his camera. Paley was forced to plug his camera with his finger to keep his film from being exposed. The images proved somewhat fogged, but it made a good story when the public was shown the film. Paley shot a lot of war images, not just the fighting, but images of the generals, as well as the prisoner exchange. He was to capture the landing of Admiral Sampson, but shelling proved too dangerous and Sampson returned to his fleet. Paley said his biggest regret of the war was not being able to capture images from the ships. After Santiago surrendered, the war started to peter out and Paley seemed to catch yellow fever. For some reason, this story has not been cleared up. There's been too little research into Paley's work, so there is a contradiction about whether he had yellow fever or something else, possibly malaria. 
At the time, the press said yellow fever, but after he returned to New York City, the story was contradicted. Some film histories say he had it, others don't mention it, and a few deny it. Still his obituary in the July 1924 issue of American Cinematographer says he had yellow fever, and I'll stick by that for now. In many ways, Paley is truly a hero of this war, and the movie's first hero. After the war, he got credit for what he did, but both he and the war seemed to disappear. Paley went out west and worked as a cameraman in Hollywood when the movie industry started up out there. Unfortunately, his health didn't improve. Whether it was his weight, the x-rays, or whatever disease he caught in Cuba, his health had declined so badly that he lost his leg, making it impossible to stand up as a cinematographer. He was impoverished, and his friends had to campaign to raise funds for an artificial leg for Paley. He died a few years later, a pauper in the land of sunshine and oranges. The major winner in this competition over the Spanish-American War films was the Edison Company. They had shaken down their competition, leaving only the Mutoscope Biograph Company as well as the French as competition. The Edison Company's legalistic arm-twisting may seem a bit cruel. Once Vitagraph and later Mutoscope Biograph compromised with Edison, their films finally reached a broader market. The other brilliant move that the Edison people did at this time was to conveniently rename their projectoscope as the Wargraph. If you remember, the projectoscope was the Edison replacement for their earlier projector that had been devised by Thomas Armat and Charles Jenkins. As for the Wargraph, the renamed machine started appearing in New York City soon after the war began. As I had mentioned, at the time, the only theatrical house showing movies was the theater at the Eden Musée. They were showing the Passion Play. But within a few weeks before the war was declared, the war graph showed up at Proctor's. Up to this time, the Edison people had been working with Coster and Biles, an older New York vaudeville house that favored European attractions over modernist American ones. But Coster and Bile were now aging and would soon both be dead. In 1897, the Coster and Bile Music Hall was sold, so someone in the Edison organization, probably James White, would take the war graph to Proctor's. Frederick Proctor came from Maine. He got into vaudeville working with a barrel juggler and eventually went into management. His first theater was built on the grounds of the old armory building in the late 19th century entertainment district along 23rd Street and Broadway. In another exercise in memory, remember Salmi Morse? He was the Jewish theater manager from San Francisco who attempted to put on the Passion Play in Manhattan, only to have many of the New York City's power structure come down on his head. What he did manage to produce was at the Armory Building, and after he abandoned this project, it became the Temple Theater before Proctor bought the property and had the building leveled and built his 23rd Street Theater on it. Proctor wasn't the dilettante that Coster and Bile were, although he started out that way. At first, his theater did classic plays, which only went so far. 
he followed that with contemporary plays before jumping into continuous vaudeville, which he had been introduced to in the Boston area. His vaudeville shows were popular enough that he opened a second vaudeville house on the edge of New York's new entertainment district on 58th and 3rd. This was called Proctor's Pleasure Palace. It was in these two houses that some of Edison's men set up the war graph, and it was a real success. New York rarely says anything positive about these moving picture exhibitions, but it was acknowledged that after its two-week run, it was the only act in the vaudeville lineup to be held over, as its, quote, stirring pictures have proven to be worthy of continuance, unquote. But in May, war graphs and their films were being sold to exhibitors, and the real enthusiasm showed itself in the rest of the country. The Kansas City Journal referred to the series of vivid moving war pictures, which included the departure of the 3rd Regiment from Kansas City, the last causing great enthusiasm. In Lincoln, Nebraska, it was referred to as Edison's latest marvel, and that it touches gently the souls of the boys in blue and brings them up and on to victory. This last quote suggests another reason this war was so eagerly embraced. It was the first time in a long time that all of the United States military was under one banner. It was the latest hope in a series of minor events in the late 19th century that suggested to Americans that maybe the division that led to the Civil War was healing. Obviously, this was just one point of view, but it was a big one. As for the movies itself, the article also proclaimed, quote, that this was not a craze for dress or novelty or recreation, but a craze to enthuse by visiting magnificent battleships in motion. While most of the enthusiasm Americans experienced at that time was for the war and the moving images that recorded it, there was a sense that the movies were proving to be something greater than the novelty of just a machine. This becomes more true after the war ended, but as exhibitors continue to travel with their war graphs and their movies, the audiences continue to be excited over them. In May of 1899 in Connecticut, several months after the war ended, the local newspaper remarked, quote, So entertaining are the exhibitions of Edison's war graph proving at the Jacques Theater that the attendance grows larger each day. Over a year later, in November of 1899, the Pine Bluff, Arkansas newspaper proclaimed the wonderful war graph and, quote, one of the largest houses, meaning audiences, of the season. By then, the war had been over for over a year. The Connecticut newspaper also made a very prescient comment. It speaks volumes of the wonderful attractiveness of the exhibition that the war graph alone forms the entertainment. In other words, for the first time, people had become aware that the movies did not need to be part of a collective entertainment in order to entertain an audience. From this point on, it would slowly dawn on people that the movies could be exhibited by themselves. In other words, while the liberation of the Cubans through the Spanish-American War 
may be considered by some to be a rather dubious freedom due to the exploitation of some of its residents by American capitalism, it definitely did give the movies its first sense of freedom and purpose. While the vaudeville houses would continue to show moving pictures, and while it would be another several years before the movies would have their own theaters, the market for traveling exhibitors would soon grow, and a real interest in moving pictures as newsreels would blossom as a number of events would capture the public's imagination. Events like the death of Queen Victoria and the tragedy of the Galveston hurricane. The movies could have died as it had started as a novelty, but its adaptability to various forms of entertainment and information made it more valuable than people considered it to be at the time. Over the next couple of episodes, we'll take a look at the movie industry in England, as well as a peculiar novelty that swept England and was known as the Phantom Train Rides. So thanks for listening and take care. 